I'm Tom Morello, host of Maximum Firepower, a weekly podcast focusing on the music, the moments, and the movements that have shaped my worldview and left an indelible mark on me as an artist and activist. Correct with Maximum Firepower. You and me. This is Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. I'm Tom Morello. You're listening to Maximum Firepower. Welcome to part two of my discussion with The Edge. Now, the secret weapon, I mean, of you two, in my view, is your singing voice. Is that that's uh-huh. something that's something that, you know, appears on the records and in a concert. One instance that I tune that I love is Van Diemen's Land. Um, uh-huh. which is just a great sort of folk song. So just tell me a little bit about that song, why you chose it, because it's a beautiful song with like a great sort of like power to the people sentiment mm. on, on Rattle and Hum. Yeah, well, I mean, two things. First of all, big inspiration for that was actually Tom Waits, because Tom's, you know, very plugged into earlier forms of music. If it's kind of a jazzy thing or a folky thing, and I'm a huge Tom Waits fan. So that was the jumping off point. And then as I'm writing this song, I realized, wow, I now hear the Irish thing that he's been drawing from. So I've finished this melody and, and chords and I'm going, this is, this is surprisingly Irish sounding, even though yeah. I, I hadn't thought about it as such. So then a week, week later, I'm with my kids and my wife and we're up exploring this area not far from where we actually recorded on Forgettable Fire in the Slane River Valley. And I come across this um, this place near this burial mound, which is Bronze Age, like thousands of years old, this 200-year-old orphanage. And on the wall, there's a plaque saying, John Boyle O'Reilly, revolutionary, was born and raised here. And then a short synopsis of his story. He, he was a, a journalist, a writer, a poet. He he wrote pamphlets against the oppression of the British in, in Ireland, was arrested, tried and convicted and sent to Australia um, to serve in the kind of penal colony of Australia, which was at that point called Van Diemen's Land. The story is a great story because he ended up escaping maybe five or 10 years later and he made his way to Boston and he ended his life as the editor of a local Boston newspaper. I think it might have been the Boston Globe, but... So John Boyle O'Reilly's life ended very well, but I was just struck by the injustice of this man who's just trying to point out these injustices in his own country and ends up simply for writing a pamphlet is is deported to Australia. So that was the inspiration for the song. That may be the most Irish sounding song in the U2 catalog. I think it's true. It probably is. (laughs) Have you ever thought, I mean, the one thing you've, you've like, it, I know it clearly has to be intentional, but like writing a big ass Irish fighting song with like a four on the floor beat to it to drive the world crazy. Has that ever occurred to you guys? Because like that to me, that to me seems like low hanging fruit right there. <laughs> I, you know, yeah, we're, we're very, very respectful of those that really know that tradition well. And yeah. there's some that are so great at it. And We've had the good fortune to work a little bit with Shane McGowan from time to time. And yeah, that is a man who knows that world so well. So I wouldn't say never, never say never. <laughs> but um, but at the same time, 
you know, we we kind of would need to go off and really do some more homework before. We yeah, could yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't. Do I, that. I think I think there's a show opener in there somewhere. Just saying. You. you <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I am, speaking of, I am fascinated with the whole um, connection between African American music and Irish music, and and you know, as you know, I'm, I've got this charity that I co-founded, Music Rising, and we're doing something in the future, which you'll all hear about. But what particularly fascinates me is the fact that in New Orleans, in the 19th century and early 20th century, you've got African musicians allowed to play their music in this part of New Orleans called Congo Square. And then you've got these, obviously, these other influences coming in. And that's what I so love about American music is this the fact that it's totally unique in the world. It's this real gift to the world, I think. And, you know, there's that little bit of the Irish influence in there somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. I'm a, while my father is Kenyan, I may have told you this before, but I'm named after Thomas Fitzgerald, my Irish great grandfather on my mother's side. So I'm, I'm a little Congo square all in one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We toured together on the Pop Mart, on on, on the Pop Mart tour. And I'll give you my initial memory of it is that the first show I believe was in Las Vegas at the Sun Devil yeah. Stadium or some, something like that. And backstage, there was this kind of like elaborate casino tour beginning thing going on there. And you guys were saying that you had just finished the record and hadn't had ample time to, to, mm. to rehearse, rehearse for the show. Yeah, so you yeah. were working in the last to the last minute. So the first day we Rage Against the Machine, we did not get a sound check. Now, we played hundreds of shows without a sound check, and it was no big deal to us. But I was so impressed by, you know, I've toured with a lot of bands. And... I think each one of you came in individually to our dressing room afterwards to apologize for like us not getting a sound check. And there were like four bottles of champagne. And we're like, we're cool. We're, we're playing a stadium with you too. That's all right, man. <laughs> but it was just, it just was a different way. You know, there's, there's yeah. sort of different ways that bands sort of handle their worlds. And I've been on tour with bands that I've never met the entire time, you know, and right. you guys took it very seriously that, and, and we had a great time on that tour. And you also, another thing that you did was you allowed fans of rage against we were in these big stadiums we were playing early so people were just coming in there's you know eighty thousand seats there uh but you would allow the fans to come to the front who wanted to see rage against the machine up close and they could return to their seats for you too which was also another it's like it's that kind of the punk rock ethos of we're all in this together and it's your show but we're playing together so to, to this day i appreciate that and when people ask me who the the kindest band was that I've ever toured with. I still say you two to this day. So uh, what are, what are, what are some, too. what are some of your memories of the pop Mart tour in general? And perhaps the, the stint oh, that we played together. Boy. Yeah. I mean, we, um, I do remember towards the end of the making of the album, I felt I could see the, the light at the end of the tunnel. So Paul McGinnis rang me up and said, edge, um, listen, you know, we're, we got these dates held, you know, should I pull the tour or are we good? And I said, Paul, I don't think there's a problem. I think we're going to be okay. Well, within like two weeks, I was so regretting saying that because it transpired that we were effectively starting some of the tracks from scratch. And the reason for that was that record was so experimental. We were working with um, a whole brace of new producers that were influenced by a much more sort of club oriented sound. Um, Nellie Hooper, who'd worked with Massive Attack and Howie B, who had this pussyfoot label. And at a certain point, we just went, hold on a second. It's great to experiment. We love that. But we've got to make this sound like our own. We've got to actually own this, these songs. So we went about replaying a lot of them. And so at the end of the album, 
there's certain new of, of those songs that we've completely deconstructed and played again. And so consequently, we're way behind schedule. And when we, when we got to Las Vegas, you know, we, we'd been experimenting with irony. We, we announced the tour in, in a, some kind of department store in New York and we were being super ironic, but I have to be honest at that point, the joke was really on us because we, we just, some of those songs just were not coming together and we were trying to figure out the arrangements. But to be fair, by the end of that tour, by the end, we had a show that we were so proud of. And the video for Pop Mart. Yeah. I was think that Me- probably, Mexico City? Was it yeah, Mexico City? I yeah. think it might be our best ever. Yeah. And it's so ambitious and it's so kind of out there. And the lemon and the, 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 the <laughs> everything about it was we were just pushing it to the nth degree. And Funkadelic were a huge influence on that production. Yes, That's yes. What, where we were coming from, the yeah. mothership. And, <laughs> you know, in a sense, we wanted to enjoy the madness of the idea of playing in a stadium and sort of celebrate the madness, but also own up to it and say, look, we know that we're a rock and roll band. We're doing this enormous tour, an enormous show. If we can't laugh about that to the extent of kind of having a little fun with it, if we're taking ourselves too seriously to enjoy this, then something's up. So that was the sort of inspiration is to it's just not take yourself too seriously. Just yeah. kind of have a bit of a laugh. And so we had the mirror ball lemon. Anyway, it was great. And we were so thrilled to have you on the road. And I mean, we, we knew your work, but it was so incredible to see you guys live. Again, it's, it's, I, I understood watching you that influence of the clash. You know, yeah. you could see it, the values as much as, as the, the visceral energy and the, the commitment was, was really obvious. I'm Tom Morello, and this is Maximum Firepower. My guest today is The Edge. Your playing is always textural and unexpected. I'll say my favorite Edge guitar work is on a song called Love is Blindness. Now, in Love is Blindness, Uh there are two, let's call solo sections, for lack of a better, Mm -hmm. sort of guitar guitar breaks. And I remember when I first listened to the record, there's one which is this kind of like sort of faster trilling. It's this kind of like anxiety building you know note movement that sort of propels the song and it creates this kind of tension and then i remember when i first heard the record the other one we'll call it a guitar solo sounded like you were playing it left-handed like the tape was on and you weren't ready yet for it it's this kind of like a couple of notes and then it just stops and there's like a couple more notes and then that became my favorite one i was like Mm -hmm. and i so i'd like just like because that to me is really profound. So tell me what your thought was in making those, in creating yeah, those. Yeah, well, I, you know, it's it's a funny thing that YouTube music is often deeply personal, born from very intense emotional feelings that are, are real. And in that case, I was going through a, a marriage breakup and I was genuinely going through the, the pain of, of the end of a, a relationship that, you know, I never thought would end. So... I remember that song, you know, and a lot of the album was inspired by, you know, there's there's, there's a lot of lyrics I can point to. I don't want to go into it now that, that I know Bono was drawing from my personal story, but also the story of another friend of his. We were both going through similar things at the same time. So when it came to me playing the solo on Love is Blindness, I just, the first time I played, I poured everything into this guitar solo. It was like I was in tears. I was just giving it all. 
But I was down in the basement, so no one could see. And I was like waiting for, you know, to hear a response. <laughs> and, and, and Danny came on and said, Edge, that was kind of okay. Let's try it again. <laughs> <laughs> and you're like, and man, I, that's it's everything. That was, it's my soul. That was my yeah, that was like blood. I mean, yeah. that was everything. And then I just went. It's not always about a, you know, personal thing. It's about how you can communicate that. It's not about having the feeling. It's how yeah. can you communicate the feeling? Yeah. So then take two. I was much more in the music than in my own head, my own sort of emotional place. And then at the end, I can't remember quite how the the last one, but it's it is it's totally broken. That's the it's, that's the basic thing. It's, it's totally a broken. person who's spent, yeah. who is broken, who has, yeah. who can hardly, you know, is exhausted. And that that was sort of how I felt by the end of of that day. Just yeah. that song was huge for me. Um, personally, and you know, that's as an artist, that's kind of the price of admission. You want, yeah. <laughs> and I know Bono's gone there on numerous occasions with his his lyrics and vocals. It's like it's yeah. big, and and if it's not, then why why do it? You know, yeah, you don't want it, it, it. Music is life and death to us. You know, mm. we can't do it if it's just entertainment. It has to mean more. Well, it's it's certainly communicated in those two solos on that song, and thank you, thank you for the backstory because I remember just like Mar. I really remember thinking the first time I heard the deconstructed solo was like, is there something defective about my cassette? Right. Like, <laughs> like yeah. Like, like was it's someone funny. asleep in the mixing room or something when they? Yeah, yeah. We <laughs> but that's did. The one we had a um, we had quite a few returned CDs of Acting Baby. The other reason was um, the opening. Zoo Station, you know, yeah. because the drums come in and they're so distorted. It's like most people are like, well, that's got to be a mistake. That's, that's gotta... <laughs> clearly not what they intended. <laughs> so, uh, so, I mean, well, that was that was actually a, you know, a shifting point in the band's history from broadly speaking, earnest to broadly speaking art, you know, in a way, yeah. in, in, in a way. And, I, and the, as a guitarist, you really sort of straddle it. And I'll talk about the earnest side for one second. The song, Where the Streets Have No Name. Now, there are a lot of bands, and perhaps you disagree with this because I disagree with this, but they say, like, you enjoy the success of playing bigger rooms, but I really love the clubs and I really love the feeling in the theaters. When you're playing Where the Streets Have, there's only one room that Where the Streets Have No Name deserves to be played and that is a football stadium all right <laughs> <laughs> right it's like there's there's only one space that can contain that right um and so mm. talk for talk for a second about like the uh, to the guitar nerds who are listening mm. to this like like how is that engine did that come about because it's such mm. an I iconic stadium rocking guitar part anthemic and dramatic talk about them yeah well this is an interesting thing that i uh the story of that, that song. We'd started the songs that became the Joshua Tree and we started recording in, in, a, in a house that we'd rented, a house that Adam ultimately bought. And then something happened. We, our lease ran out, so we had to get out of that place. And I had just, just bought a, a house that I was going to be moving into maybe six months later, but we hadn't moved in. So I said, look, we'll just move to this new place. So we moved into this new, new place and started recording. And then it came to like a little bit of a break and myself and Bono were talking and he was going, we've got some great songs here, but you know, we're really, we don't have a great live song, like a, like one of those songs that's going to work for us in concert. 
So he said, look, we've all got a bit of a break coming up. If you get a chance, try and see if you can come up with something to, to fill that slot. So as it happens, I'm alone. I have three days alone in this completely empty house, not a stick of furniture. I, I bring in a chair, I bring in a little table, a few guitars, a keyboard, and I set up in one of the bedrooms. And what I do is I say, now, if I don't say, you know, if I'm the guitar player in our band, what would I want to play? I say to myself, okay, I'm in the crowd. I'm a fan of our band or a band. I don't care what the band is. What would I want to hear? What's the sound that would ultimate sound for me as a fan? So I started working on, on these ideas and I had a four-track Kia Tiak, a little four-track cassette and a drum machine and a bass guitar and, and guitar. So I started off and with some synths, started off with a kind of tempo that I liked. And literally it was like starting to explore the possibilities of, of how a guitar could change from one sort of more legato tempo and just take it up to this unbelievable intensity of, of tempo and, and, and sound. You know, it took a little while, to be honest, but I got to this transition and this place, and it wasn't a finished song by any means, but I played it to the others the week after, and then it suddenly just became, okay, this is, we got to get this. So it became the, the focus of the entire team then for the next two weeks is to reel this thing in. So the jumping off point was that transition from the intro, which is so kind of mellow and legato. And then this, now we're yeah. transitioning to this other juggernaut. That was it. That's fascinating because like it was a conscious decision to write mm. what it became. I mean, that's interesting. Like a lot of times, like, you know, for Rage Against Machine, Killing in the Name or whatever was just one of 12 songs that was, you know, sort of written in a, in a batch. But the idea that, like, you were set to the task, give us the stadium you know what? rocker. I really yeah. was. <laughs> and, and the funny thing about it is, um, because obviously if you're in a band, you, you, you don't necessarily write to order because that's, that never works. But if you set yourself a kind of throwdown, a creative task, it can can sometimes work. I was talking to Noel Gallagher about this recently, and he was he admitted he said, you know, I wrote my best songs when I was competing against another band. You know, he says when we were competing against Blur, he said that was that's where really the I got it got me so in, inspired. So for me, this was like I just felt okay. I want to be blown away. It's not I want to blow people away. I want to be blown away. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah, am I yeah, going to blow yeah. myself away? <laughs> yeah. And that, I think, was the difference. In some ways, it's slightly selfish things. I want to be moved. I want to be affected by this. Because if you go the other way around, you're just trying to please people. It's never going to work. Um, so let's let's segue from that into tell me about the project with Bob Ezrin. Like, that's, I don't know mm. what, of it, what of it you can reveal, but it is. it sounds like it's a tremendously worthwhile, the latest in mm. a long line of tremendously worthwhile causes in the charitable yeah. work. So what exactly is that? Well, I, I think it's very interesting to to you and me as guitar players. So, you know, New Orleans um, was the inspiration for this, um, the founding of this charity, Music Rising, which was Bob and myself met very soon after Katrina hit. And we were both talking about how awful it was. But we both had the same instinctive sort of fear and anxiety, which was the impact it was going to have on the music culture of New Orleans, because 
we all know of New Orleans as the Mardi Gras. We all know of New Orleans as like a, just a great fun city. And that there's a lot of interesting music happening in the French Quarter. But actually, New Orleans has a history uh, which is unique and in, in world music culture because it is the one place in North America where African musicians were allowed to maintain their traditions right the way through the 18th to the 19th into the 20th century. And so that's the place, I believe, where African music met European music. They say it was the returning Buffalo soldiers from the Civil War who had been given brass instruments and suddenly there were brass instruments in New Orleans for the first time. They, they had this place in the city called Congo Square where musicians were allowed to gather on the weekends and play together. So that that's the sort of crucible. So cut to today, you've got this unbroken tradition from that period of second line brass, of traditional jazz, zydeco, Cajun, gospel, blues, all of that music is sort of represented in the New Orleans area. So when Katrina hit, we wanted to make sure that we didn't lose the sort of local knowledge, because the thing about New Orleans is it's one giant music academy, like people teaching, you know, each other multi-generationally. So anyway, cut to today. Why today and why what's Music Rising up to now? Um, music Rising is doing another guitar auction in order to try and help the musicians of the New Orleans area who have suffered hundreds of days of unemployment and a lot of them are really struggling to make ends meet. But the problem for the world is that if they give up, take different jobs, move out of the area, it will be the kind of the disintegration of this incredibly important and unique music culture. And the music academy of New Orleans will start to, to fall apart. Katrina was bad enough, so we want do we want to just make sure that that doesn't happen. So that's that's the reason behind the auction. But what's interesting about the form of the auction is we came across a new platform, a digital platform, which allows small groups to gather together in these virtual spaces online and experience presentations, content, or just physical representations of, of, of spaces together so what we're doing is we're doing a kind of experience for people and what will that will amount to fans of music arriving in this virtual space, being able to see the musicians showcase the instruments that they're going to put in the auction, explain their relationship with the guitar, play a little if they want, but it's all a communal gathering. It's the sort of thing that if every guitar player was was at the auction and everyone had the chance you could go into an individual room and just spend time with a musician but this is all going to be conducted online so instead of like a couple of dozen people being able to experience this we could theoretically have thousands of fans wow. i think it's a first i think it's great for music it's certainly great for new orleans and for the music culture of that area but i think what is really exciting me about it is it's great for guitar Yes. It's great for, yes. for guitar and guitarists yeah. and fans of guitar. So I think it ticks a lot of boxes. So guitar, so just, just, to, just to be clear, so guitars will be auctioned, but you get to, anyone in the world can like view 
the guitarist and talk about the history of that particular guitar that you then get to bid on that then helps the charity. That's just yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, it's great. It's great. Yeah, I mean, so it's, it's a new it's a new kind of interactive experience. Um, so we'll, we'll keep you in the loop. On please that. do, please do. I'm ha I'm happy to happy to donate. My friend, our mutual friend Bob Ez, longtime producer and great dude, Bob Ezrin is involved in this as well. We'll talk. Yeah. I want to thank you very much, my friend, for for being on the show. Thank you for donating your time. Uh, you're calling in from France. I don't know what time of time of day it is there, but hopefully it's a evening, uh, not too I'm not late. Even aware. Uh, it's not too late. It's not good. too late. Okay. <laughs> um, but it's always great to talk to you, and thank you very much for your intellect, insight, and the art through the years and in the future. Tom, always a pleasure, my, my friend, and we'll do this again soon, I hope. I look forward to crossing paths again soon, my friend. All right, take care. Until next time, this has been Maximum Firepower. Take it easy, but take it. Let foes of justice tremble. This has been Tom Morello's Maximum Firepower. Hear this episode again or listen to past shows right now on the SiriusXM app. Search Maximum Firepower.